Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing the narrator from Piranesi. And I will just be upfront. We have just spent the last probably three or four minutes listening to various pronunciation guides about the Italian name Piranesi. We don't want to go full Mario. Andrew, what's your Mario version of this name? Piranesi. There it is, which actually some of the YouTube videos we we looked at did sound a little bit like that. There, there was a whole variety of of like different inflections and different emphasis. And and like one of them is like a very nasally Italian sound. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's a variety. started to sound like... Um, voice actor caricatures for 1940s <laughs> cartoons. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't want to go that far, but also I want to try and pronounce it correctly. As I read the book, I kept saying, I think Piranesi is what I was had in my and, head. And my default was Piranesi. Right. Uh, but it seems like it is Piranesi. And this is a 2020 novel by Susanna Clark. And it tells the story of a man lost in a labyrinth of infinite halls and statues who tries to make sense of his world. And he also slowly begins to reconstruct his own identity. Um, I came to this book because, uh, well, Susanna Clark wrote Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which we have covered on this podcast. I think we covered the adaptation, not the uh, the novel. Yeah, I think we did the miniseries. But that was a novel that kind of everyone was talking about when it came out 16 years before this one. So there's a 16-year gap between her debut novel, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, and her follow-up novel, Piranesi. And so it was already getting buzz when it was announced that it was going to uh, come out and then i saw it uh won an award for the women's prize for fiction and just lots of um you know book review sites this is one that everyone was talking about and almost universally i saw positive reviews so it's kind of one that i had filed away of like oh i should get to that and then when i did it was um one i couldn't put down so i usually have um like five or six things I'm reading at a time, <laughs> um, some nonfiction for uh, work, one or two fiction novels, uh, and usually a graphic novel or two that I, I try and rotate reading some of every day. This one just kind of swallowed up my time for reading, <laughs> and I abandoned the other four or five books that I had in the stack and just read uh, Piranesi because I was just sucked into this world. And, and um, it's, it's short enough that it would have consumed all of your time for maybe two weeks tops yes like uh, that's, a that's matter of it, days was all jonathan strange and mr norrell that is that's uh, it's solid it's hundreds and hundreds of pages i I'm, i will look up a page count uh and and report back this one i've got the copy right here it it's like 250 only, yeah 243 pages i think is what what i have here and so one reason that i think it became the one that that called me so much is like I, you know it was kind of like i, I, can, I can see the end actually <laughs> on this where some of the books that I have in my stack, <laughs> it's like, well, I advanced 20 pages and that is, you know, a fraction <laughs> of, of, uh, you know, a very small mm -hmm. amount uh, of the overall work. But with this one, it's like, Oh, if I actually, you know, dedicate an hour of reading right now, I'm going to feel like I've, I've burned through an awful lot of this. Um, and, and then uh, as soon as I finished it, I think I headed off to you pretty quick. Right. Mm -hmm. Andrew? Yeah. And I took it with me on um, a little family vacation. We, we, we're doing a road trip to visit some of Kestra's family. And I, I almost never 
like take a book on those kinds of vacations. Um, and I did this time and I got into it during this vacation. And then I, I read it. I think I finished it within a week or so after we got back because I just said, okay, well, when I've got a spare 15 minutes, I'm going to dedicate it to this mm-hmm. because I wanted to. And then I, I took like a couple extra hours on the weekend. It's like, okay, I'm finishing it. Yeah. And, and it was like the last hundred pages, but I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to finish this all right now. <laughs> and, uh, it, it's definitely uh, been passed around the family. Some, I think, uh, you know, full disclosure, I think I actually bought it at first as a gift for Emily and she read it very quickly and then mm-hmm. it went onto my stack. Oh, um, and then I handed it to Kestra mm-hmm. to read before I gave it back to you. Yes. Yeah, so our, our wives have also read it and enjoyed it. And I know mm-hmm. some other people in the family are now reading it. Uh, it is one I definitely recommend. And it is less intimidating than Don- Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which Susanna Clark's first book is um, it, more Dickensian, I would say, in its mm-hmm. sprawl and length and uh, the way and setting. it's structured. Yes. Um, do you want to guess how many pages it has? I've looked it up. I, I can see a copy of it mm-hmm. on my shelf right now. And it's got to be over 500. I want to say it's over 600. It is 1,024 pages. Oh, my goodness. Those are some, that, some thin grade pages. Yes. That one came out and was extremely popular and um, like just rave reviews. Uh, and immediately she was being compared. Um, like here's an article from Vulture that says um, Jonathan Strange and Miss Norrell is um, one of the greatest and most original British works of fantasy published in England since the days of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, her, fr- her friend, Neil Gaiman, said that encountering her writing was akin to watching someone sit down to play the piano for the first time and playing a sonata. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and that work, uh, like, it is intense. That one, had, like, this notes that that came with 800 footnotes <laughs> in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Royal. Uh, oh, wow. The presentation of the book. It's just very different than Piranesi, which is just more of a straight through read this 240 pages much more of a modern or postmodern postmodern i'd say uh to to it but there is a complexity within it that is equivalent Mm -hmm. to heavily footnoting yes definitely and and like i don't know about you but i had moments where i'm like hold on and like kind of like flipping back to an earlier chapter where it's like i think i got a reference to this thing that Mm -hmm. is now mattering more i flipped back a couple of times i definitely I, I considered getting out a notebook to track the flow the of time. Oh, the, the time. I, Emily, when she read it. Oh, uh, she wanted she, to construct a map. She's like, I, I felt like I needed a map of the rooms. Like which room has the, the you know, the Minotaur oh. statue. Because the rooms are all described by what statues they have. Yes, but the but they map. are like clearly numbered and directioned. Mm-hmm. Yes, he says like, you know, if you go north through this room and this room and this room, you come to that room. And if you turn right there, you know, he, there's lots of descriptions oh, from the narrative. I hadn't thought about doing that. I was thinking because each entry is is dated, mm-hmm. um, but it's not it's not dated to our calendar. It's dated to an internal calendar. But yes, he, he there creates- is a crossover point where you could then reconstruct, essentially. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, it's not like as intense as something like the prestige, but there is the reading of journals that gives you flashbacks and makes you reassess mm-hmm. what's what's come before. So definitely a sense of time uh, would help. But um, uh, yeah, I, 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 it's an impressive work. And for this to be the sophomore work for a writer, it's like, oh, I wish I wish we had more now. Some trivia. Let's just dig into the trivia about about okay. this one. Why was there a 16 year gap? Um, 
after her first book was published, which she was in her 40s when that was published, um, she said she was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome and writing became not just a chore, but impossible. She said she would like sit there and like just mentally debate a phrase and like just do nothing and then be exhausted <laughs> after oh. after that. And she had started writing a sequel to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. And um, she said it was just like the idea of doing that was too intense. And so she stepped back and I don't know how many, like the, the timeline of what this is in the 16 year gap. I don't know. She says she stepped back and went to an earlier unpublished work, which is Pierre Nazi. And she said, this has fewer characters. I don't have to do research <laughs> for <laughs> the way I do for, for Jonathan Strange, Mr. Norrell text. Uh, and there's, you know, it, it's really focused on a singular character. Uh, now when she says she doesn't have to do research, I felt research happened here, particularly on like new age pseudo mystical movements in the 1960s. I think there was some research done. Uh, <laughs> I mean, or maybe she just has, you know, a hobby. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. she was familiar. Um, but that, uh, you know, is what becomes this book. Piranesi uh, is going back to that earlier unpublished book. Um, and I'm going to quote some from this uh, Vulture article uh, that I already read some of the introduction to. Uh, but it says, I'm just going to quote directly. But just a few years after that book came out, let's see, she withdrew from public life in a smattering of conversations with journalists between 2005 and 2007. She mentioned that her work on her sequel was delayed by an illness. She'd been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. And as the years went by, her seclusion deepened. Readers despaired that she would never publish another word. At one of the author's last public events, a conversation with Neil Gaiman in 2007, her and editor, Alexander Pringle, noted how pale and otherworldly Clark looked. Eventually, even Clark's communications with Pringle slowed. I remember thinking at the time, it was as though she'd been captured into the land of fairy, Pringle told me, as if she'd been taken away from us. And then, about a year ago, and this, so this would have been like 2019, because this full article is from 2020. About a year ago, a dazzling manuscript unexpectedly arrived in Pringle's inbox. It was the most extraordinary thing. She said, there was the book, complete. When Pringle read the first, uh, first read the new book, which required almost no revision at all, just the most delicate editing imaginable, a poignant thought crossed her mind. It was like reading where Susanna had been all those years, wandering in those halls. The novel, it seemed, was Clark's dispatch from another world, what Susan Sontag once called the kingdom of the sick. In supplementary materials provided by a publisher, Clark mentioned that she began work on a version of the story in her 20s, but couldn't figure out how to write it or what the character's story was. Then she fell ill, and I spent a long time angry at the unfairness of my illness, angry about all that was taken away from me, she writes. But how I try to look at it now is that I still have a lot left. I still have all of history, all of literature, all of spirituality, all of mathematics, all of art, all of science. Clark had someone learned to make life even in the midst of illness and isolation, and the, this epiphany gave the book its meaning. And I will say, um, I've read uh, in prep for this podcast episode, I just went and pulled up a whole bunch of reviews from when the book was published. It was published in uh, 2020. The reviews are all from like late 2020. And all of them make note of this being like a text that resonates because of the isolation of COVID <laughs> not lockdowns. Mm -hmm. uh, and that somehow the timing of this book coming out now was perfect for where the audience was in terms of getting a more direct resonance than if they you know casually picked it up uh, in you know, be, before COVID. Uh, a little bit of other uh, trivia. Piernese won the 2021 Women's Prize for Fiction, and it was nominated for the Hugo Award, a Nebula Award, the World Fantasy Award, and the uh, audiobook read by, oh no, uh, I always panic when I have to pronounce this name, Chuetel uh, Eljafor. I think it's Chuetel Ejiofor. Ejiofor. Okay. He's the actor who plays uh, Mordo in Doctor Strange. Mm -hmm. uh, but that won an audio award for best audiobook. That's how I really want to listen 
to that version. That sounds like an amazing version of this. Oh, his his voice. Like I can hear him in films I've seen him in and mm-hmm. to hear him like as a narrator, that just makes sense. Like there's some actors where it's like, I don't know that I want to hear your voice for, you know, 10 hours. Well, and <laughs> I think <laughs> the for the films I've seen him in, I think he often is very effective at internal conflict mm-hmm. like within his character yes. and like confusion at himself. Like the I, Mordo character, which yeah. is underdeveloped in the MCU, but it's definitely um, there. You know, yeah, this this like self, not self-loathing, but but self-conflict, self-confusion. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's kind of perfect for this book. Uh, you know, this narrator who at times is saying, this looks like I wrote it, but that doesn't make any sense. And, <laughs> yeah. But also like a building frustration with mm-hmm. like, why did I write this? I, I, but I didn't write this. But why did I write this? Yeah, definitely. And I and, like I can picture that with with that performer. Uh, a little bit more trivia. The name Piranesi comes from an 18th century Italian artist named Giovanni Battista Piranesi, who made a series of 16 prints called Imaginary Prisons. And these are like almost M.C. Escher-esque underground vaults with towers and flying buttresses and elevated stairs um, and receding spaces and disappearing paths. Um, you should uh, if you've never seen them, I, I do recommend I, looking. I up looked a few up because yeah. I had to look up the name. I was like, "Why is this book called this?" I like, I I was careful because I was like, "I don't want spoilers," uh-huh. but I want to know. Like, this is clearly an allusion to something. I don't want to yeah. know what that's supposed to be. And then as soon as it was like, "Oh, he did like M.C. Escher type, you know, labyrinth complex, you know, visual like visually impossible um, drawings," I was like, "Oh." Okay, I get it. <laughs> it's it's visually impossible, but it looks architecturally sound, if that makes sense. Where it's not mm-hmm. just nonsense. It's just um, kind of mind-bending as you look at them. I immediately wanted to order a print when I was looking through these. <laughs> I'm like, Ooh, I kind of like this Piranesi art. <laughs> um, and the last bit of trivia, the novel has uh, very explicit allusions to C.S. Lewis. Like it opens with a quote from The Magician's Nephew. And mm-hmm. there's some character names borrowed um, from that. And... Um, it also references the Secret Garden, but also um, Borges is identified as uh, one of the influences for Susanna Clark. I've already told Todd he needs to go read this book. I, I would also submit Plato. Mm-hmm. Yes, Plato's Cave is another one uh, that gets mentioned mm-hmm. <laughs> as far as references uh, that we see. Um, okay, that's all the trivia I had. So I'm about to go into the spoiler summary. Listeners, I do recommend you read this book. So if you want to just pause this episode, go read and come back sometime in a month or so. That's just fine. Be- uh, before you get into the summary, mm-hmm. would you want to see this adapted? Okay. At first, my thought was no. But then when I was looking, up, like I just typed in the film rights to see if they had been bought. Yeah, like, I'm sure I somebody's could, got the rights to this already. I couldn't verify that anyone had the rights. But the first thing that came up was a tweet from Guillermo del Toro just uh-huh. praising this book uh, and how magical and transportive it was. And okay. that, I thought, was... I could see Guillermo del Toro adapting this and that would not bother me. Mm-hmm. It's tricky. Like uh, books that are, you know, uh, I mean, this is written in a journal. Mm-hmm. And so that always makes it tough to do an adaptation. Yeah. Are you going to do narration? Are we going to, you know, is it just gonna be voiceover uh, stuff as we watch the person wander through the labyrinth? Uh, is it somebody reading the journals and that's the avenue to narration or because there would be so much silence if you just tried to show some of what's being described. in this. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. Inter- interesting thought because Guillermo del Toro has also said in some, some articles lately that he's not interested in doing live action film anymore. 
he's interested in animation and it, like various forms of animation. He did stop motion animation, Pinocchio recently. And would, would you want to see Guillermo del Toro do animation for this? Uh, yeah. Like I could definitely see uh, like a, a Selick Guillermo del Toro collaboration on this. Mm-hmm. Um, now I, I think there'd be, because there's this ethereal otherworldliness, there's an immediate like, well, good Tim Burton. I don't want Tim Burton to do this one. I don't want I, that. I do like Tim Burton. I'm not trying to knock him. He just uh, would not be the right match for this. I don't think. I mean, there, there's a version of Tim Burton mm-hmm. that is, is good for this. You know, the, the big fish, Tim Burton. Yes. The best Tim Burton. <laughs> um, but, but the majority of Tim Burton stuff, the tone isn't quite there. Cause it's not, it's not macabre. It's not Gothic. This is not no. Gothic. Mm-mm. It's, but there is a weirdness uh, to it. Realist classical. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's what it is. Yeah, like it, it's closer to classical than gothic. But there is that that surrealness, and but there's a creepiness mm-hmm. to it. And so it is like like a Neil Gaiman is is like uh, I think an apt comparison. But right. but not not as weird as Neil yeah. Gaiman stuff. Now this would be an out there one, just thinking about potential adaptation and feel free to immediately shoot this down. It came to me just now. Would I want to see a Wes Anderson stop motion version of this? I thought about Wes Anderson because of fantastic Mr. Fox when, mm-hmm. when we were talking about stop motion and, and something. And so I thought Wes Anderson, Hmm. Uh, Wes Anderson would, would give you a map. He would, he would do a top down view. Yes. Of the house at some point. Yeah, and I don't know if I want that. Yeah. But but I don't hate it. I, mm-hmm. I don't hate a Wes Anderson. I don't want a live action Wes Anderson adaptation of this. No, you want that fantastic Mr. Fox. Or Isle of Dogs, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also don't know, do I want this as a movie? Do I want it as a series? If it's a series, then I want like short episodes. Right. Yeah, I think it would make sense to digest this in like you release a 20 minute chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and you control the release schedule. You don't just dump it for a binge. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you want, this is one that would beg for the audiences to feel like they're solving the mystery. Honestly, I would want it. I would want it to be very flexible, which they do with streaming sometimes now where they have some episodes that are longer and some episodes that are shorter. I would want several like 20 minute episodes and then like a 45 minute finale, mm-hmm. you know, like, like where it hits you in reading. Where you're like, okay, I can pace it out, pace it out. Okay, now I've got to take it all. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to jump over to the spoiler zone summary. But before we do that, we want to thank you for downloading this episode. And we especially want to thank any of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist podcast. Or no, slash protagonist. No podcast on that. Sorry. I've read that probably 300 times. <laughs> You'd think I'd have it memorized. Uh, and support our show with at least a dollar per month, uh, which we got a new patron at the dollar per month level. And that Hooray! made me happy. <laughs> because again, we're paying more to podcasts than we ever have uh, in the history of podcasting. Uh, well, I mean, our, our podcasting. Yeah, our, our podcasting. Because, uh, I mean, we, we bought some equipment early on, but we were largely using a free hosting service for our recording. Or not for hosting, but for a recording. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is no longer free but we, we decided to stick with it. Uh, but all supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming. 
that we are not yet covering as episodes of the podcast and all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. All right, on to the spoiler zone summary. Um, the novel is the contents of a detailed journal of a man called Piranesi. And this man keeps this journal. And so we, we read what he's written. He lives in a vast labyrinth that is filled with marble statues and interconnected rooms that he's begun to map out. And he's got like numbers and he, he knows the space. Well, this, this is home for him. And he's mostly alone. He believes that there have only been 15 people in the world, 13 of whom are skeletal remains, but twice a week, a man he calls the other visits him for conversation. The other calls the narrator Piranesi. Piranesi feels like this is not really his name, but he has no memory of what his name actually is. He spends his days exploring in wonder at the world around him, preparing for his own survival by drying seaweed and catching fish that come from seawater that is in some of the lower levels and will flood to the upper levels in a rhythm that Piranesi has become familiar with and mapped out in his diaries. He knows the cycle of the moon and the tides. Uh, when the other tells Piranesi to explore a particular area, Piranesi says that the broken shards of statues in a room that's on the way there hurt his feet and the next time uh, the other visits the other gives him a box that has tissue paper under which Piranesi finds special food coverings that will help him in his explorations and for a reader this is he was just given like Nikes basically and it's like Wait. yeah there's rubber and canvas and <laughs> it's like shoes yes it's like, a, shoe in box. a shoe box yes with the, with the tissue paper still there and that is I remember like this feeling of like intrigue where like everything else had been so otherworldly in the descriptions mm -hmm. and then this was something that was concrete from our world so, okay. yes yeah everything else is uh, like it, it it doesn't it could be any timeline mm -hmm. you know and then suddenly it's like okay this is a modern like developed world shoe yeah and you know the other uh it's been a little while since I, I read it, but I remember not like trusting the other. But once he does that, it's like, okay, other, what's up with you? <laughs> <laughs> so the other insists that the labyrinth is key to unlocking knowledge and wisdom. And Piranesi wants to help the other. At one point, Piranesi suggests that they abandon the search for knowledge, though. And the other says that they've talked about this before. And the labyrinth must be affecting Piranesi's memory. Uh, Piranesi refuses to believe this, but he comes to realize that his journals only go back five years. And he can't actually remember anything from more than five years ago even though he's got to be in his 30s uh he thinks uh during one of their conversations the other warns piranesi that there may be another person in the labyrinth piranesi starts calling this other person 16 remember 13 remains piranesi and the other and so this is the 16th person in the world uh the other one's piranesi that he should kill 16 if he encounters them uh piranesi meets an old man in the labyrinth um, it's not who he was expecting. He calls the old man the prophet, and the prophet explains that he was sent by the one that Piranesi is calling 16 to find out if Piranesi exists in this labyrinth. Uh, the prophet tells Piranesi that the other's name is Ketterly, and Ketterly stole the prophet's ideas about this world, which he says, um, he calls the world, I think he calls it a distributory world formed of ideas flowing from another place. <laughs> so helpful. Yeah, that's about as concrete as we're going to get as to what the space is. <laughs> now, the name Ketterly feels a little fam familiar to Piranesi, and he goes back to his journals, and he goes to some that he hasn't read in a while, and he finds Ketterly's name and also some unfamiliar words like London. And his, his journals are meticulous, and he has an indexing system. Mm -hmm. So he's able to track things down. Yes. In, but, in records that he doesn't remember writing. And this word London confuses him, but also it's in his own handwriting. 
can quite remember it, but do I remember it? Uh, <laughs> and he reads through everything that he can find in his journals about Ketterly, and he realizes that the prophet must be Lawrence Arn Sales, and the other is Arn Sales' student, Ketterly. Arn Sales was an academic who controversially became engaged in pseudo-New Age mysticism and old-world magic. It, it's strange. Uh, and he claimed to travel to another plane of existence, and he gathered a cult-like group of believers around him, one of whom was named Ketterly. Uh, and so now Piranesi is like, he's getting these flashes of this this world, and, and this stuff is in his own writing, so he's got to believe it, but it's still very hard for him to, to wrap his head around. He's going to avoid 16, but he wants to warn 16 uh, that there's going to be flooding on one of the levels that he thinks 16 has been visiting. And so he leaves a message, and then 16 is going to leave a message written in rocks. And this message is going to say, are you Matthew Rose Sorensen? And this is really going to blow Piranesi's mind. <laughs> He's going to get a, a vision of a world that he knows but can't quite remember. He studies his journals feverishly, and he gathers uh, scraps of torn up paper. that there, there are pages of a journal that were destroyed, he realizes, and birds in one of the levels have, have picked up these scraps of paper and put them into uh, nests. And he goes and like, is carefully taking the paper out of all these nests that the birds have made. And he, he can't quite fully recreate the pages, but he gets enough uh, to realize that Matthew Rose who he thinks is himself was a scholar doing research on a book about Arn Sales and his cult uh, of, you know, mystic followers. And he visited Ketterly to interview him about his time with Arn Sales. And then Ketterly showed him that Arn Sales theories were true. And he says, do you want to see evidence that Arn Sales was not some crackpot? And the, you know, reporter slash researcher <laughs> Sorens is like, yeah, please show me your proof. And then uh, Ketterly is going to do uh, a spell essentially and transport him to the labyrinth and trap him there. And wandering in this strange world, uh, Matthew Rose Sorensen loses his mind his memory, I guess, not his mind, but his memory of who he was, but he was still carrying all his notebooks uh, in his like messenger bag um, that he had with him when he entered the space and he turns those into journals. And the 13 remains are other people that Ketterly had trapped here to learn about this plane of existence. Uh, or, uh, not yeah. necessarily Ketterly, but oh, right. the, the various uh, excursions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, there are various people. Like some of this goes back to the professor and some of it's Ketterly and there's and, you know a I number of people who have accessed yes the, like there are definite implications that you know the professor was finding stuff from previous people you know and re repeating what they had done so this mm -hmm. could be uh definitely yeah uh, sorry it, it was but, not exclusively ketterly who yeah there, there's definitely implication that that the professor is responsible for some weird stuff mm -hmm. <laughs> and he's super shady and, <laughs> yeah, and yes, ketterly is <laughs> is the more direct shady entity but also, I like. I almost got the implication that there were maybe some accidental um, events. Yeah, like associated the with the two. Like some people got caught in flooding that they, mm -hmm. they weren't trying to trap them or kill them or anything. They just got trapped. Yeah. Um, but there was also some some definite nefarious action. Oh yeah, these are not good people. Piranesi realizes that uh, sixteen must be someone who's trying to rescue Matthew Sorensen. Ketterly tries to lure sixteen into part of the labyrinth that will soon flood. Piranesi rescues 16 from this murder attempt by Ketterly. And 16 is a police detective named Sarah Raphael. Ketterly is going to die in the flood that he was trying to kill Raphael in. And then Raphael is going to help Piranesi to return to the real world. Piranesi, though, does return to like our concrete world, but never regains his memories from his life before the labyrinth. He adjusts to the real world again. Um, 
though he can and does return to the labyrinth frequently. And he now sees himself as a third person, not Matthew Rose Sorensen, not Piranesi, but someone who explores both the real world and the labyrinth to find beauty in both of them. The end. Andrew, what do you think of this? <laughs> it's so much more satisfying in the book. I'm Not yeah. to knock your summary, oh, yeah. this is but one. it takes away like all the thrill and all the magic and all the little little bits of like what's going on. And somehow it's just perfectly paced with um, like episodic bits that aren't related to the overall narrative mm-hmm. so that you're craving the next hit of mystery. But then there's also these like wonderfully charming things where he's going and he's interacting with the birds and he's taking care of, of, you know, his daily routines and everything. And he's just, he loves the the house. He loves the, the statues and so he talks about you know some of his favorite things and then without waiting too long like and back to the mystery yes <laughs> and then take a break from the mystery mm-hmm. um and so like none of that is in your is in your description and, and so like i don't know like the, the summary made me sad because i wanted the book again <laughs> yes no I, I that's completely fair because so much of i think what makes the book special is the mood and the feeling right the vibe mm-hmm. uh, as you're reading it not necessarily the concrete beats of what is actually happening mm-hmm. uh, and and the the process of discovery yes is solving the mystery where you is, feel like you're getting these snippets like just a little glimmer and you feel smart because you're connecting it and you know the author's laying it out there for you to connect mm-hmm. but you feel smart when you're like oh wait i and i remember this it it's such an interesting setup because it, it it's like a mystery story where you as a modern day reader have greater context than the narrator. Mm-hmm. And so you are putting it together faster. Like I, I think both of us probably would, as we read it would have said he is Matthew Rose Sorensen before Piranesi. Identified. It's like, yeah, okay. That, that's going like, to be who Piranesi that's, is. That's going to be him. And, <laughs> but he is like willfully not solving his own mystery. Mm-hmm. But you are able to like identify things. You're like, oh, well, that's the that's the shoes. And you start thinking like I was so much more suspicious of the other than he ever was. Yes. <laughs> like so early on, I was like, the other seems not cool. I, I don't know. Maybe he's just he might just be a jerk, but I feel suspicious about him no matter what. And, and Piranesi so... is still is still so innocent about him. Yes, he's naive. Like he, you are reading his own descriptions of the conversations. And as a reader, you want to scream like, wake up, Piranesi. <laughs> Don't you, <laughs> you get are, it? You're 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 so innocent and naive uh, that you are not seeing what is for the reader comes across as like clear duplicitousness. I think that's a mm-hmm. really clever bit of writing that Susanna Clark is doing in order to present that in a way that makes you still root for Piranesi, uh, but also you're only being shown the world through Piranesi's eyes and Piranesi's insights. But as a reader, you're given enough information to see beyond what Piranesi can see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because sometimes uh, I, I know I've read things where an author is writing, you know, first person journal entries and you're supposed to grasp a sense of the narrator not being self-aware, right? They're pointing out someone else's flaws, mm-hmm. but it's, it's really their, their own flaws. flaws. Yeah. And it was like the opposite of that. Where I'm just like, oh, like, I know that you can't process this, but I want to will you into understanding this for your own good. Not because you're unaware in, in like a, um, 
like in like a self-centered way mm-hmm. you're unaware in a selfless way yeah and i think as uh, a reader or a viewer as a consumer of stories i've become much more comfortable with ambiguity than i was as <laughs> uh when i was younger or like when a movie ended on a note where it's like wait was that real or was that a dream and you're supposed to like be left with that that, you're talking about inception (laughs) well i mean that's 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 a big example but i'm talking about like even when i because that came out when i was in college but you know something from when i was younger uh like that would make me did that come out when i was in college now i'm questioning the timeline of my life but anyway Uh, like i'd be feel very frustrated and now i'm much more at peace with deliberate ambiguity and i think mm -hmm. this book does an interesting thing of being both concrete and ambiguous Mm -hmm. Um, like there is there is a real story Yes, there's a real explanation for why this person is here. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of stuff that's not clear. That's just hand wavy. Like this is almost like a Rasputin-like figure in you know art sales. Or, or, um, or they're they're not going to give us the entire journal. And so there's like entries that he he like retranscribes some of his old information mm-hmm. about art sales and and Ketterly and and everything that happened. But there's also entries that he doesn't transcribe. It's like, but yeah. I want to know all of it. I want. All of the journals. Yeah. But also like what exactly is this world? Like we were given that mm-hmm. phrase about it being like a distributory of thoughts or something from another place. And it's like, that's, that's all we get as to what this place is. And like, because this is rooted in our real world and like, we're supposed to be going somewhere else. Like there are enough like new age movements and mystical movements throughout history that you can point to like Susanna Clark's building off of X, Y, and Z and is saying, what if they really, you know, could go. Yeah, uh, you know, to to a different plane, <laughs> and, and, and it, it, it's it's non-specific, right? It's it's mm-hmm. similar enough to a dozen secret societies or yeah. um, or occult movements or or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, which are things that do pop up enough in our real world that it makes sense for a fantasy author to play with them, and and sometimes people do disappear in association with them, and <laughs> there's unexplained things that happened with them where there's nobody reliable to recount what happened. Right. Or anyone who would know is just not going to say is going to look the other way about Mm -hmm. what happened that night when so-and-so disappeared. Where is the, you know, the wife of Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) There's Uh, some groups that have some of this right now. I will just say. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's, it's similar enough in, in that regard. It's like, yeah, this feels, very real, but it's also, oh, this is a little more concrete than than you ever get from one of those. So like, what if there was a narrator who could give this? But also, this is really only the journals. This is not like a publication of of Matthew Rose Sorensen after he escaped the 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 house and you know published everything. It's like, no, nobody's going to know all of this. Like, we're just readers who who get this. This is not like the world knows this story yeah. by the end, by the end of the story, like, no, no one really knows. And I think this is a really interesting example of the unreliable narrator, um, which with first person narration, like as a reader, you're always supposed to be kind of on guard, like, okay, you know, what biases does the narrator have, but it's not ever duplicitousness or, or anything. It's just uh, our narrator has, you know, been so abused by <laughs> Ketterly and by this place that he literally doesn't know. Uh, and he's just describing, like, I think we're supposed to take at face value what he describes as his actions, you know, mm-hmm. as, you know, this is what's happened here. That's all there. But 
we also very quickly start to say, you don't actually know what's going on. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, and and like he he'll like present something. He's like, but I'm not going to go with that. It's like, but we're as readers like, well, that's the like you just described the right scenario, but you're saying that you're not going to believe that. Mm-hmm. It's like I he says this, but I don't believe that. It's like, well, that's probably true. <laughs> yeah, it's um, and I think one of my favorite parts about this uh, is within the character of Paranese. I loved at the end when he's like, I'm not Matthew Rose Sorensen and I'm not Piranesi. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I literally don't remember who Matthew Rose Sorensen was outside of what I read. <laughs> yeah. In, like I, uh, in these I, I know this is his body. I can tell that it's comforting to his family that I go and spend time with them, but I don't exactly feel it. Yeah. But I also, I feel like there's something inside me that was Matthew Rose Sorensen. Mm-hmm. But it's and not. I'm not. But it's not alive anymore. <laughs> manipulated figure that Piranesi was either. I'm now a third person in my life. Mm-hmm. I, I was, I was really worried that the finale of the book was not going to have satisfying resolution, especially mm-hmm. about identity. Mm-hmm. And I think I think she managed it somehow. She figured out like the only way because it wasn't going to be satisfying to say. My memories um, came flooding back and now like I everything know. everything came back and I understand everything. It's like no, but like Piranesi was like a whole person. Mm-hmm. And so it it would feel weird to just like subsume that into the person that we weren't reading the whole time. But then yeah. it's like, but it's also not satisfying for him to not recover his previous self. And so I think this like this third self is probably the only way to get some you know, satisfaction and, and like resolution for it. Where it's like, okay, so yeah, it's all part of him, but also he's new. Right. And absolutely. There are still parts of this book that I love. It's one of my favorite things I've read, uh, in, in years. Um, like there's one other book I can think of that I know I liked more, but we're going to be recording a podcast on it soon. Uh, but this is definitely (laughs) up there, but there are some parts that, um, like I either need to reread to see like, do I, did I miss something or I just don't remember something that would explain a few things. So like, uh, Ketterly and the professor and Raphael, they don't lose their minds in the labyrinth. So mm-hmm. is it because they had some preparation before they were heading in? They, like they were expecting to go and, and Matthew Rose Hornson did not <laughs> expect to actually go anywhere. Uh, I, know, I was think there they're... additional manipulation so I've read from it, Ketterly? I think I've read it more, more recently than you. Yeah. Cause I gave you uh, a copy. So definitely. <laughs> and so I think there's an implication of like the intentionality to it where mm-hmm. he he's he's ripped from reality, whereas right. they are stepping from reality. Stepping. So there's an element of that. But I also think it's um, to some degree like duration. That's why Ketterly is always checking his watch and leaving. Yeah, because the longer you spend, mm. the easier it is to become lost. And so I think they have they essentially set up guards where they're like, OK, I can be in here and then I can leave. And that's I why. Like that. Ketterly asks about like where a certain room is and he kind of calculates like, how far is that for me? Like how long would I have to stay in here? Right. And also to, we know, to like, go Raphael, there and then get out. Raphael is not staying in the labyrinth. Yeah. She's there for... periodically. And so I yeah. think, I think they imply that like duration. I think one of the implications of, um, on sales, weird stuff 
was that which is really I mean, I mean like the, the police find somebody like locked in his house at one yeah. point and and the person is is somewhat crazy and the implication is oh he kept him in there to observe the degradation of his mental state right yeah this person was locked in the labyrinth against their will and then somehow is back in our physical world you know real world mm-hmm. uh, but is but, is not not in a good place yeah and so i think there's i think there there are reasonable explanations for it i think they they address it yeah and and i think both of those both the like willingness and the duration were like things i thought maybe that's the explanation so i think there must have been enough hints that it still lingered with me even if Mm -hmm. i didn't remember it being explicitly explained yeah and i can't i couldn't tell you the exact things because it's been maybe two months since i read it Mm mm-hmm now, I want to um, read, I, I think this is, captures some of what we've been saying about like the tone and the feel of this. This is, again, from that uh, news article by uh, Leela Shapiro uh, in Vulture that I, I've already read a couple passages from. Uh, it says, on one level, the book is a philosophical puzzle, like something out of Kafka or Borges, but it offers the excitement of an adventure story and the dark allure of a de- detective yarn. And I think that captures what feels so special about it. Is there are big ideas, but there are also uh, like propulsive action that's there, and also like mm-hmm. those little uh, you know constellations that's forming of like your greater understanding of like I see that pinpoint of light, I see that pinpoint of light. It's making a shape, uh, and it's managed to do all of that in a pretty tight text, which we know from Susanna Clark's other book. She is also very capable of doing the sprawling, <laughs> massive. Uh, you know, it's going to be hundreds of pages before anything makes sense mm-hmm. uh, in this. Can we talk about, I mean, there's, I mean, really four characters, I guess. Mm-hmm. Can we, can we talk about each of them? Yes. Because so I think with... they are, they are all interesting. I mean, I, I guess this is only the characters that we directly see. So we have Pierre Nacy and then we have three people with whom he interacts. In the other world, I think there are there a few other like police or something that we see or we're told he interacts with at the end. But let's talk about the ones that we see in the world. He, he, like he, there's in a the scene home. of him in the real world, so we know he's interacting with people, but he's not he's not conversing. These are the only people that he ever talks to. Right. All right. So let's let's end our discussion with Piranesi slash Matthew Rose Hornson slash mm-hmm. this other figure at the end. So let's do uh, the other first, uh, Kevin okay. Lee, as we come to know his name. This is immediately like it feels like a Rasputin oily sales con man, you know, kind of, mm-hmm. <laughs> kind, kind of figure um, in, in how, how he gets presented. And again, and, you, you want to say like, how credulous is Piranesi that he is <laughs> not catching the evil vibes that are just mm-hmm. radiating off the descriptions it's, that Piranesi gives. Like Piranesi is writing the description <laughs> of this character and is like, don't you see? <laughs> I think the, like the second time they interact, I lock in and like, this guy's, not no this is he's going to be an antagonist in some form this this mm-hmm. is a problem and i think because the f- you first get some fairly distinctive like description of the other in the journal before you get a recounting of of them interacting right because because pyrenees is gonna write down their conversation word for word i mean we mm-hmm. just gotta assume at least yeah. And so he, in, he in, describes... in the way of literature that he has a photographic memory for their conversation mm-hmm. <laughs> and it gets plugged into the journal. And so he describes, you know, like his, his general life conditions and he talks about the other before he, he, you know, he documents a day where he interacted with the other. And so we get some, some exposure to him and that's relatively neutral. But when you get the direct interaction fairly quickly, you see, okay, like I can observe manipulation so quickly. 
and I can observe uh, like dismissal. Mm-hmm. I think those would be oh, like just the such two pompous arrogance. Yeah, the, like, those like are like the two things. Like assured superiority mm-hmm. uh, just and drips from him. Yes, all the things that Piranesi thinks about and cares about are not important to the other, but the other insists that Piranesi must care about the things that he, the other, thinks about and cares about. Mm-hmm. And so, so the other couldn't be bothered with Piranesi's system of navigation until it until it's relevant to one of his endeavors. And then he just wants it to come easy. He doesn't, yeah, he doesn't learn it. He just says, okay, you figure it out. Doesn't he also, and you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't he basically ask the same thing? Like, when is this, this section going to flood again? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. Piranesi is the one that's actually worked out the rhythm of, of yeah. uh, you know, the flooding. And that's how he's trying to set his trap for Raphael. I, and so he's taking advantage of, of all of the information. And, he so quickly turns he he turns sinister and he's just so cold about well you should kill the you should kill 16 if you get right. a chance and if you talk to 16 i will kill you but mm-hmm. not threatening it's it it's such a weird tone to it and also i think one thing that stands out as far as like a character revelation and one thing that makes you hate him so much is so much of Piranesi's descriptions are about, um, you know, like I have to go do this so I will have food uh, or means of making fire, you know, for, mm-hmm. for this day. And if I don't, if I miss this day, I'm going to be going hungry for three days. And I know I can do that because I've done it often enough. Uh, but, but I, you know, I got, I got to go catch. And then like when he says, well, I can't go walk across that one section because it's going to hurt my feet. And the guy comes with a resource and it's just like, you have access to all the resources Piranesi needs and yeah. you don't even care. You ha- are so disinterested in his life and his well-being that it doesn't even cross your mind to supply him. Or with- or you're willfully withholding. Yes. Until it serves your needs that, oh, if I give him this, he'll do something for mm-hmm. me, so I'm going to give it to him. And so clearly, it, it, clearly the other is, um, it, it is not empathetic, is maybe not sociopathic but definitely narcissistic yeah narcissistic and and not empathetic and so it's mm. you know it's 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 the multiple points on on whatever they call it like the the dark triad of, <laughs> yeah. of personality traits and psychological traits like okay this person is not helping not really helping piranesi unless it helps him like it, he's not even preserving piranesi yeah like the the casualness with which he brings the shoes is like you could supply this like you just know you could have supplied him with a sleeping bag and and uh you know uh, food uh, yeah, yeah food and a heat source of some sort just immediately you know the, these could have been done um mm-hmm. and and we've been reading about Piranesi's like uh you know almost obsessive need to go to this room at this time in order to ensure that he lives basically that I will be mm-hmm. able to live another day. <laughs> I have got to be here right now to take care of this particular yeah, a, a very body. precise routine. Mm-hmm. And that mo- again, like I've already mentioned it, that the, the shoes, but when he brings the shoes, I just remember like, it's one of those, like you're immediately rethinking everything on the story that you, you were enjoying and you liked, but now like, boom, just, Oh, <laughs> it's like uh in, in yes. lost when ja- Jax is like we have to go back it's like whoa what what is this right <laughs> what, what is this moment right now <laughs> um but yeah so is it like the other so clearly 
and and we as readers, we've talked about this. We as readers are clearly identifying the other as a, a negative figure in the story. He is an antagonist. He is going to be a a negative for the story. We are against him so far before Piranesi is. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I would just say Piranesi, you pure but poor sweet innocent Piranesi. <laughs> yes. There, there were some significant red flags <laughs> that that pretty late you are still ignoring. <laughs> yes, this. and and Piranesi is just willing to attribute everything. The Piranesi, I mean, this would be getting into into Piranesi's character, but Piranesi attributes his own intentions to everyone else's actions. Yeah. He must be doing it for the same reasons I do things, which are for good reasons. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about the prophet, the next interaction that we see take place. This so we is... get so much more in the journals, mm-hmm. Matthew Rose Sorensen's notes about Arn Sales than we get in the interaction. Yeah. Um, and I think one thing that is definitely distinctive about Arn Sales compared to Ketterly, Ketterly is clearly comfortable in his sense of superiority and complete isolation, whereas Arn Sales needs sycophants <laughs> and followers around him. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's uh, two different kinds of ego <laughs> that are on display. Oh, can I just say something else I remembered about Ketterly? Mm-hmm. And so, oh man, the naivety is is not just a Piranesi. It is a Matthew Sorensen trait. Mm-hmm. But um, in the journal... When Matthew Sorensen goes to Ketterly for an interview, I hear, like, I can remember reading the moments where Ketterly says, so nobody knows you're here? <laughs> Is anyone waiting for you? <laughs> it's like, Matthew Sorensen, come on. <laughs> Get out, get out. You should be this, so suspicious of these people. This is a serial killer is like kind of what you're thinking. But like, you know, by yes. that point in the story, we know like, okay, this is actually, uh, you but, know, a strange mystic with. But yes, he, he, he has like two or he has like two or three things where he says, so nobody's waiting for you. Yeah. Your editor doesn't know you're here. You're not married. <laughs> yeah. There's a couple of red flags. And so Matthew Sorensen also perhaps a little bit on the, on the, um, I don't know what's what's the lack of being suspicious. He's, he's just too credulous, right? You know? Yes, credulous. That's the yeah. that's the way to go, and and possibly a little self. I mean, maybe a little self centered, mm-hmm. and and self involved, not thinking about what other people's intentions might be. So focused on what his own intentions are. Ooh, right. Because I'm okay. trying to get well, the story. This is a source to help tell me the story. And so uh, he's asking questions about me. I'm just going to, like, I'll answer them and wave them off. I'm not going to think is kind about of them. Priming the pump for conversation. <laughs> yes, instead of. Instead of self-preserving. Yeah. I mean, anyway. yeah. in talking about an uh, adaptation, uh, it is just a, another tragedy that we we, um, we we don't have so many actors whose like voices you want to play Ketterly, <laughs> like immediately. <laughs> you think of like, oh, I wish, I wish uh, Tim Curry was, uh, you know, was still acting. Like he's still with mm-hmm. us. But, you know, I wish, I wish he'd, uh, you know, was acting. Uh, and we could we could have him or or Alan Rickman. Oh, I wish mm-hmm. Alan Rickman <laughs> could play uh, Ketterly. I could see Alan Cumming doing the Ketterly, actually. Hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so let's. Uh, but uh, so, we're, we're so trying Arnsale. to shift over uh, about Arn Sales or the Professor. Uh, yes, Piranesi first thinks about him. Uh, again, so, this is the one that in 
the 1960s uh, kind of people assume started, it's started kind of, the cult. Started a cult. People assume it's just a drug thing, but it turns out it's also, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think at some point, he, like he's quoted, thing. he's like, "Oh, sure, there were drugs, but that's not what it was all about." Yeah, <laughs> that got me some people. <laughs> it brought me some followers to have the drugs accessible. Um, but yeah, so in the interaction, he has kind of a similar dismissal where he seems like like a sociopath. <laughs> where he's mm-hmm. not at all concerned. He's like, oh, you are here. Okay, whatever. It was like, no concern, no desire to help. Just someone else asked me to do this, and I felt like doing it. I don't More actually I care about you. I my old world again. Like my yeah, I, I, I don't care about you. I'm not concerned so, about you. I'm not here to help you. So just for the logic of the book, Arn Sales has been locked up in prison and there is enough that is needed in order to access this world that he can't do it from his prison cell uh, is an implication that we have. But then as uh, Raphael, the detective is trying to look into Ketterly and the disappearances of Matthew Rose Sorensen, specifically of Matthew Rose Sorensen, but also connecting some dots out, some other disappearances. She goes to visit uh, Arn Sales, right? And, Somehow and, in that interaction, we're supposed to read that he was a- able think, to show her the way to the labyrinth. Yes. And then, um, yeah, I, I can't remember the specifics of it, but he does not go there regularly. Right. He, like she somehow was able reason. to give him enough freedom to be able to. to yeah, she, she gets him it, to but go. Also explicitly, this is how she learns how to get to the labyrinth was through mm-hmm. Arn Sales. Yes. Um. And yeah, so in the interaction, he's he's very unbothered and, and you know, gives that sense of like, this person doesn't care about people. He lacks normal human empathy. Yeah. I don't know how to teach you. You're supposed to just kind of care about other people. He does not. <laughs> um, and and then in the stories, in, in, you know, the writings that get reestablished from the journals, uh, he's clearly predatory he -hmm. is taking advantage of people he is using people for his objective of i don't know accessing or exploiting the house it's not totally clear on sales and ketterly like they they find they, they have access to this world and there's clearly like the assumption that some great power or knowledge is here in the world or that's their belief yeah that's their belief that's their motivation for coming here but also they've learned we can't actually stay here long enough for us to figure it out mm-hmm. oh and um ketterly he he has a list of things that uh, piranesi keeps a list of things that ketterly has said the the secret power will allow us to do these things like control the minds of others read minds fly live forever <laughs> and, and like at some point piranesi is like we should stop looking for this i don't want any of this anyway like why would you want any of this like a good person couldn't want for any of these things and that doesn't even tip him off to the point of like he must be a bad guy that he wants it no i'll just i'll just convince him he just doesn't understand that a good person wouldn't want these things not he's a bad person for wanting these things Mm -hmm. um but yeah so there's an implication that they're like they are seeking aren't sale and ketterly are looking for something here so they are craving something but it's not clear like they don't even know what it is yeah, it's just it, we think something will be gained for us by exploring this world, but we actually it's too dangerous for us to do it. So, and there's not really any evidence that that they ever gain it. Like neither of them seem to gain anything out of it. Yeah, uh, it's just that kind of generic like uh, lust for power, lust for for knowledge, mm-hmm. and 
and the fact that they don't have you know basic human sensibilities mm-hmm. <laughs> um, seems seems part of that as well. They're willing to exploit other people for it, and so the difference between Ketterly and Iron Sales is relatively insignificant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean uh, Ketterly is absolutely you know uh a, a, just another variation on the one who taught him how to get to to this world mm-hmm. um all right uh what about Raphael? We, i don't feel like we Raphael comes like our actual interaction with Raphael comes very late in the book and i don't feel like we get too much uh as far as mm-hmm. her personality um but is there anything that stands out for you i mean uh, i think in part because there's not a lot of like direct personality we do get just a sense of oh this is the hero mm-hmm. she is she is heroic she is putting herself into danger to help someone else she is pushing boundaries in order to rescue matthew so yeah. you get all, all of those heroic attributes but it's fr- like with a very limited view and so you kind of have to, i oh 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 i've just had a i've just had a thing because there's so like little information about her I'm projecting a concept, a platonic ideal of heroism mm-hmm. onto this character because those are the only things that we know about her. Yeah. I mean, we, we and, have- and, and I don't know if she's actually that noble, but I'm projecting a lot of nobility because of the limited exposure. Yeah. I and mean, we've got the character types. You have Paranese is a damsel in distress without mm-hmm. realizing it. Uh, that is very much in need of rescue and incapable of rescuing himself. Uh, we've mm-hmm. got the the villain <laughs> that is Ketterly, uh, um, and then the, we're the going to hero that is going to write in. Now it is not like like the finale with the flood. Uh, it is um, Piranesi's mastery of this world is what allows him and Raphael to live, and Ketterly's mm-hmm. lack of mastery is what's going to kill Ketterly. Um, you know, just, just Piranesi knows how to survive the flood and he knows which statues to, to get to. He knows where to climb. He knows how to save himself and Raphael and, um, Ketterly just gets swept away and doesn't understand the tides and the, the ebb and flow of the water. And, and um, doesn't, doesn't heed the warnings. So it's a classic, mm-hmm. if you'd only listened villain, your, your own hubris. All right, we are nearing the hour mark. So, Andrew, let's real quick wrap it up. What would we say about, let's say, Piranesi, not Matthew Roswardson, or the final version, like mm-hmm. the Pokemon evolution of this character? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Piranesi is who we get the most time with. Um, I think we've actually found a way to deconstruct by by the other interactions, and and I was very intrigued to find similarities between Piranesi and Matthew Roswardson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely not put that together. But as soon as you started to describe it, I'm like, oh, you are right. Because there were absolutely warning flares just flying through that conversation. <laughs> it's like, Matthew, like... you moron, come on. <laughs> it, it's almost exactly as Piranesi, come on. And it's it's just very interesting also that our sense of Piranesi from the beginning is a broken figure, right? Like we know something, he, yes. he, is, he does not have the whole picture. And, and our conclusion is not that he's been put back together. No. Uh, at all. And I think that's the the expectation that a reader has, you know, it, 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 when this is our protagonist, you know, the next stage is going to be them, you know, a complete whole version of themselves. Did you and, expect in the in the finale when he's talking about the new status quo, mm-hmm. did you expect him to say that he goes back to the the house periodically? 
No, but I love that he does. I think that was I, absolutely right. Choice. I expected him to to never go back, and I was like, "Oh, this is different." And I think it speaks to that like brokenness. Like if it had been a complete restoration of Matthew Sorensen, then my assumption would be I never want to go back there. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he is like this new person, he's like, "Well, I go there." Like in part for comfort, but also to take care of it. Yeah. Yeah. It, like, uh, <laughs> this is a whole world, right? And, and that's, that's part of his, his default. And also like, I take care of, I take care of myself and I take care of others. And he, the, he and Sarah Raphael, they take those remains and get them identified. Right. Uh, I think, I don't I think that? though, I don't think, oh. I, I think they actually take Ketterly's body there. And put him with the other, with the other remains? skeletons. Okay. Yeah, I and think Ketterly's does a okay. Um, but but also, um, Matthew at some point takes so the the person that was locked up by Aaron Sales, and mm-hmm. went crazy. He takes him back because to, it seemed like to to the house, right? And to, that it was soothed him. It yeah. that was a soothing, and so in some way it seems like if you've been to the house I, I don't know there's like and and so maybe this is healthy for the third entity that he goes back periodically because it it, it means that you know it's not lost from him and also we're getting um i'm remembering correctly right that that rafael goes back with him right i don't think often i think she's not inclined to go regularly and she she doesn't like do the caretaking that he does right but but she yeah, is she, the, she can continue to access. But yeah, I think this is also like in the classic hero's journey, uh, you know, Ma- master of two worlds, the master of two worlds. But it's it's like Matthew Sorensen was the I mean, master, easily duped master of our world. <laughs> per- participant the, of two worlds of, of, of the, the labyrinth. Uh, and now this new version is actually gaining mastery of both. Yeah, so it's it's it, you know an inhabitant of two worlds, mm-hmm. um, but but also there are elements of Piranesi's character that it, well it would feel lost if he didn't go back because part of his activities were taking care of the dead mm-hmm. and and taking care of the house and taking care of the animals and you know he was taking care of himself as well as well as taking care of the world and. If he were to leave the world and just focus on himself, it's like, well, that feels, that feels, I don't know. That doesn't feel right. Yeah. He needs to be a participant in, in the house to some degree. And I don't know what he's not seeking for the knowledge. Mm-hmm. Is it like, did he gain the knowledge? Is that why he doesn't need to seek it? Like, did he get the secret? And if he yeah, did, I, what is it? <laughs> there's enough, um, ambiguity here at the end and enough concreteness that I'm just fully satisfied. I really think Susanna Clark threaded that needle of giving me oh, an yeah, I'm... unexpected ending, but one that's satisfying, giving me enough information to explain the relationship between the labyrinth world and our world, but also it's vague and fantastical enough mm. that it just is, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'm not and... bothered by mm-hmm. asking these questions. And, and there's like in, in the finale of the book, she, you know, hints at, something deeper going on by saying that he recognizes someone. He's like, that man looks very much like one of the statues. Mm-hmm. It's like, so there's, and it's that Plato's cave. Like there is some impression from the world into the house 
or from the house into the world. Right. Don't know which direction it is. Yeah. All the praise for this book. Really, listeners, if you're looking for oh, good so read, it, I, it's really fantastic. I, I, I know I'm going to, to go back to it multiple I'm times. I'm going to get that audible book. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think I will, too. All right, well, that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Doolin Genre shows, you can go to doolingenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. Please leave us a review. It really helps us out. We would like to thank Scott Coffey, who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. And I really don't want to sound like Mario, you know? It's amazing. Piranesi. Piranesi. Well, that was really good, Andrew. <laughs>